Pazuzzi has been poured. The candle is lit. That's the next line. <laughs> Welcome to the horror salon. Welcome to the horror salon. I'm your co-host, Andemic. And I'm your co-host, The Witch. I mean, this that, is, that was the best start ever. That was the best start we could have you possibly think had. We had already uh, dug into today's beverage. Um, now I'm eating a candy cigarette. Yes. Andemic, uh, Andemic has brought a pack of candy cigarettes um, and a whole host of what I would say are interestingly described beverages. <laughs> okay, so let's back up and tell them why. Okay. Today is the witch's birthday. It is. Happy birthday, witch. Thank you, thank you. And I thought, what better way to celebrate um, your number of years on this earth than with some disgusting beverages or potentially disgusting beverages. Uh, sure, because they could be delicious. So to celebrate the birthday in honor of the witch, we have a fancy champagne. We do. But... um. Just out of sheer coincidence, because I totally forgot we were having champagne. I knew it, but I didn't internalize it. Anybody who knows me knows that's the thing. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I brought three at least disgusting sounding sodas for her to try on air. And I'm very excited. Mm -hmm. And they do sound disgusting. Yeah. Um, So I brought, this is Gross Gus. And if any of you live in uh, Columbus, Ohio, Rocket Fizz oh, yeah. has the biggest selection of weird sodas, maybe around. I don't know. So many weird things. So we have Bloody Nose. Okay. Dragon Drool. Mm-hmm. And Pirate Piss. And see, the one that, in, like, just from the names, because I do not know what these are supposed to taste like, nor mm-hmm. have I tasted them yet, but from the label... Pirate piss sounds like it's going to be the worst. Yeah. So here's what we're going to do. Yeah. We're going to taste. Uh, we're going to taste the champagne first. Yes. Yes. Um, and then we're going to do a, a play on the mimosa. Okay. And we're going to do magrosas. Magrosas. <laughs> it may make this taste better. I don't know. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. So let's fair. let's go for well, it. Well, what champagne do we have? Oh, we have. Oh, right. We have, is it Cause? Matodo Classico? Yeah. Vittoria. C-O-S. C-O-S indeed. And if you, at first glance, it looks like cider. Yeah, it's like a rosy golden color. It almost looks like a sparkling rose, even though I don't think that's what it is. It's an extra brute Spumante Matodo Classico VSQ. I see. I'm not like super fancy when it comes to wine i have a very well one of my best friends um he is very into wine and he would be able to tell you exactly what all of that means but i have no clue about like grape varietals or anything i just drink it well you'll be able to smell it for the rest of the week since it exploded all over your kitchen it did i had one of those movie moments mm-hmm. which i'm super excited about i popped the champagne <laughs> and it's it spewed just spewed all over the kitchen all over the kitchen and it made me really happy inside because that's never happened to me. But um, in true witch fashion, uh, as excited as she may have been, she goes, well, that happened. <laughs> yes, that was my reaction. Not a reaction Getting mellow in your all. old age. Not a reaction at all. All right. Okay, let's, let's give it a try shot. This. Oh. It does taste cidery. 
it I know does. That it's like a dry cider. Very, like extra dry. Mm-hmm. Well, it does say extra brute. Yeah. So Maybe I suppose that, that means, means extra dry. I don't, I don't know. But it's very, I mean, it's very yummy. It's a sparkling wine. Of yeah, course, could, it's going to be. It's a little sour, I'd say. Yes. Um, it does of, taste like heartburn. It, uh, heartburn forward. Yeah, if you drank this whole thing, definitely heartburn yeah, forward. I'm going to spew some lava. Uh, but it's good. If you're a sparkling wine enthusiast, I would highly recommend this. It's easy to drink. Well, and this is even happening because I also for this evening got some candy cigarettes. Yes, she did. And I tried to place one lovingly on top of her glass and she's just it fell in the glass it fell so in the glass it is also candy sig forward it is candy sig forward um right there it is actually not just i was expecting it to dissolve to dissolve like an alka-seltzer or something yeah it is hanging on there well look it's like it's still in full form it is in full form well maybe what does that mean i don't know maybe it'll be like the worm and tequila <gasps> oh <laughs> but it'll taste better yes it won't taste like warm. Oh, we should also mention before we um start the 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 pop tasting. Um we are also snacking tonight for the first time on air. Uh we have some delightful treats from the Cheesecake Girl. Shout out to the Cheesecake Girl um here in Columbus, Ohio. She does all sorts of fabulous cheesecakes and fun flavors like normal flavors you would find but yeah. also just some really fun flavors and tonight we're having her funfetti cheesecake and her blueberry donut cheesecake and i have to say they are a delightful i yeah i don't usually care much about dessert um but these are honestly next level so they good. are fabulous they're so good and i so my favorite dessert is cheesecake because i too agree like sometimes dessert can get too rich for Mm -hmm. me yeah and even though cheesecake when you think about it you're like that's a really rich dessert but for me it's because it's not always it's not like based on the sweetness like Mm, to me cheesecake isn't sweet heavy because it's got like the creaminess and all of that in it Uh, it's a little bit of sour in it and then you get the sweet from the crust usually so that's why i like cheesecake so much because it doesn't feel overly sweet to me and even with like the funfetti element and the donut element i still don't think these are too sweet i think that they like nod to those flavors but you have the creamy sour richness of the cheesecake and it's not like overpowering no in any way. it's stupid good <laughs> so if you cheesecake are in Columbus, lady you yeah. rule cheesecake girl get cheesecake girl excuse cheesecake me girl. yeah if you um are in the columbus area highly recommend checking her out she also has an awesome instagram to get your mouth watering so you should probably check her out there i think it's just at the cheesecake girl nice look it up you'll find it it's, nice. it's super good so we're going to be snacking on those all night. But we promise we won't snack too close to the microphone no, we'll because that's off. disgusting. We'll snack off mic. <laughs> <laughs> We're not barbarians. <laughs> um, so I'm going to drink this real fast. But yeah. while I'm drinking this pandemic, do you want to introduce our topic? Yeah, today? absolutely. Uh, okay. So tonight we are talking about literary classics. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first question should be, uh, what, do we, what do we mean when, we're, when we talk about a classic, a literary classic? Well, what makes a classic a classic? You got to ask that, I guess, right? Absolutely. Not every novel catches on. Not every art form catches on. It's almost like lightning in a bottle. And I found some some key ingredients mm-hmm. that that lend uh, that if a if a work has it lends to it having the potential to become a classic. So, 
one of the key ingredients is memorable and diverse characters. Okay. I like that. <clears throat> it has to be well-written, obviously. Sure. Um, and then uh, very big, timeless themes and truths. Um, yeah. a, a classic, what, what gives it longevity is its ability to make that connection through time. Uh, yeah. So, so you know, they're timeless. Um, and they never run out of lessons to be learned by new generations. I like that because it feels like a lot of the classic novels that I think about when you say classic, and this can be in the horror realm or out of the horror realm, they tackle such big topics that mm-hmm. it never feels too specific for it to be irrelevant, Yeah, if that makes sense. So makes like, sense. you know, yeah. it, focusing on death or mm-hmm. focusing on a certain phase of life. Like I think of all the, the coming of age stories yes. and things like that. And it's, that's pretty universal, mm-hmm. you, you know, and, and spans time. Mm-hmm. So I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. So tonight we're going to focus on two particular novels. Um, but I, I thought it would be, uh, I, we would be remiss if we didn't at least mention um, some of the others. And <clears throat> there are dozens and hundred so more so many uh read anything read often actually uh you never know what you're going to uncover and something could become a classic for you you know just yeah. as defined by what you're looking for that is exactly how i found my all-time favorite horror novel uh the keep by oh, f right. paul wilson I, I knew um that. i just picked it up it looked cool and i picked it up and something came across my radar recently about the keep is that that has a movie attached it does to it, right i think i might have it came across in one of my recommendation um, cues or something like that. But I, I need to watch that movie. But I should read the book first, shouldn't I? Well, or I does mean, it not matter? It honestly really, I suppose, doesn't matter. Um, but there will be a couple elements in the movie that they don't explain that come from the series. I the got adversary it. cycle. So I got it. Um, so it might be helpful. Maybe to be helpful. Yeah, I got it. But that book scared the bejesus out of me. Anyway. I digress. Um, so here are just a few that that um, if you have a chance to pick up, do The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, mm. uh, 1959. Beloved, Toni Morrison, oh, 1987. The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's 1898. Very classic. Um, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. High. Very good. Very Robert good. Louis Stevenson. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosemary's Baby, mm-hmm. Ira Levin. Uh, Ghost Story by Peter Straub. You know, I've heard that. I have not. That's one I have not read. Yeah. I need to because I hear that one's pretty yeah, creepy. Pretty, pretty great. Mm-hmm. Uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Picture of Dorian Gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oscar Wilde. The Phantom of the Opera. Gaston LaRue. Okay. Um, so those are just, those are just some. But yeah. here's what we're going to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I know we're going to uh, head right into... Um, to Frankenstein. So I'll just say Frankenstein as a classic. Uh, first of all, it is heralded as the birth of the science fiction novel. Mm-hmm, it is. Um, but because it is so steeped in the macabre, it it, uh, it crosses that genre into horror. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Um, there is the timeless notion of the ethics of science. Yes. Um, and Frankenstein, the monster sits squarely on that thin line. Of what science should and shouldn't do. Yes. Uh, it plays to the ego of man. Mm-hmm. 
uh, man is now creating man. Uh, today we have things like cloning and cryogenics. I mean, these are timeless uh, debates and um, and questions. Absolutely. So this book, to me, is a classic. This book is definitely fits your kind of depiction of a classic mm-hmm. that you that you painted there so beautifully at the beginning. And I also think that it's funny because I was talking to some folks I know about, you know, this episode and we we're going to do the classics mm-hmm. and they literally asked, "Oh, so like Frankenstein, Dracula?" And I'm like, "Yeah, exactly." <laughs> exactly that. Exactly those two. And it's funny that when you say the word classics and you're talking about horror and you're talking about and we are talking about from a literary context, but I would even argue any context when you say classics those two names pop to the front of your head every time they have just spanned uh-huh. generations um so like Endemic said we're gonna kind of launch into frankenstein first mm-hmm. and then we're gonna follow that up with a talk of dracula and um one of the things i think that we really should you know talk about before we dive too deeply into the novel itself is the person behind the novel the mastermind author mary shelley yes. um who wrote Frankenstein. Um, and I did a little research into Mary Shelley and her background. Um, and, and I'll just share kind of a, an overview of her because I think that it lends really well um, to the conversation about Frankenstein and how she came to write Frankenstein. Yeah. Um, so Mary Shelley was born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin in Somerstown, London in 1797. Mm -hmm. Um, Her mother was Mary Wollstonecraft, who was a really popular feminist philosopher. She was a writer, Mm -hmm. an educator, and she was just really well-respected for kind of being a feminist thinker of her Mm -hmm. time, which was a really progressive kind of place. I mean, think about that, 1797. Um, So she she was pretty uh, well-known. Her father was William Godwin, who was a philosopher, a journalist, and a novelist, and he was well-known as well, um, but he was more well-known for his political ideologies, particularly okay. because he was considered an anarchist. And so you kind of have these two very public-facing mm-hmm. parents. And so her mother did pass away when she was very young. She passed away right at, pretty much right after Mary's birth and that left William to kind of raise Mary and she also had a half-sister Fanny Imlay um, kind of had to raise these two women on his own when his wife died you know William was distraught as you would be Mm -hmm. um, and he wanted to pay some sort of tribute to his late wife he just thought that her work was so important Mm -hmm. and so he uh, published a book called the memoirs of the author of a vindication of the rights of woman of woman and that was her book uh, memoir uh, uh, the uh, vindication of the rights of woman was um, his late wife's book Um, so he kind of published her memoirs surrounding that right and he did that in kind of uh, with loving intention to give you know her readers her followers a close glimpse into her life Um, but what it turned out to do was really kind of um, turn the public on to this idea that she was a um, she she was involved in a lot of affairs and she she lived very freely oh, and that oh. was very scandalous mm-hmm. for the time um, and though that wasn't his intent that's kind of 
the the attitude towards these memoirs um and the book was very popular but that's kind of how society um turned it shaped it so mary grows up she reads this book she reads her mother's work and through kind of synthesizing all of that down she becomes uh really enthralled she idolizes her mother Mm -hmm. and her mother's life's work and you'll kind of see that as you hear more of her story she really puts into practice some of these ideas that her mother um had when it came to feminism and things like that well in the circumstances surrounding um what brought her to write frankenstein absolutely see it there absolutely yeah wow so after his late wife dies william tries to raise his two girls um and he realizes very quickly that it's just so hard for one parent to raise two children um, not only physically but also financially um and so he starts to fall into some debt um and this leads him to kind of accelerate finding a spouse um to kind of help take on some of the home Mm -hmm. responsibilities and also some financial responsibilities um and so in walks mary jane claremont mary jane claremont has two children of her own uh charles and claire and it is said that she really kind of steps into this role of She enters this new household. She clearly favors her own children over the two children, you know, of William. She treats them very openly as such. Um, And she's just generally not liked by any of William's friends. Um, And she's especially not liked by young Mary. So um, there's definitely some tension there um, with Mary Jane Claremont. Um, As Mary continues to grow up, um, she doesn't really receive a formal education um, per se, but she does receive an education that wasn't super common in her time. And that's because her father wanted to make sure she was exposed to mm-hmm. all of the intellectuals mm-hmm. that he knew, um, exposed to his writing, his library that he used, the places that he went, he yeah. would take her along. So she was actually a very well-educated young woman for the time because that just wasn't heard no. of at the time. And so, and she loves it. She loves learning. Um, and he kind of picks up on that um, and really wants to celebrate that. And so while the education that she received isn't really what her mom had envisioned, or at least what you can glean her mom had envisioned through reading her work, it is something, you know, I think that led to Mary being in a place where she could write a book like Frankenstein because, you know, she had those experiences. Right. Um, And otherwise we might not have gotten that novel. She also, alongside loving to learn, she loves to write um, at an early age. And she actually, so at one point, her father opens up his own little, like, um, children's book publishing house thing. Um, and she writes a poem and he publishes it. So one of her first published works is when she's young. Um, and, and it's just a little children's poem that he that he publishes. So she she writes often in her early life. Um, eventually she's sent to live, um, with the family of William Baxter in Scotland. Um, and this was a friend of, uh, William Godwin. And there's a lot of speculation as to why William Godwin sent Mary to live with this William Baxter. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some kind of potential medical reasons that she was sent to live there, but the other reason, um, and one of the reasons I probably favor, is that William Baxter was a radical. 
And William Godwin really wanted Mary to adopt his kind of anarchist ideology. Wow. And so he thought that's who she needs to go learn from is this William Baxter. And I kind of, um, from the mo- what I've researched, I think that might have been wow. some yeah. motivation there. Sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there's probably, and this is just pure speculation, but there's probably some element of, well, I'm her dad. So if I tell her this, she might revolt she might not but maybe if some other person tells her (laughs) that it might be easy easier for her to digest kind of thing um so she goes she stays with the baxter family she loves it she loves them she loves kind of learning from them Mm -hmm. um and it's in between her stays in scotland because she goes a couple times um in between her stays she meets this radical poet named percy shelley Ah. and percy shelley is a huge admirer of mary's father william godwin and and you know he he comes often to william godwin's home and is learning some of his ideologies and is kind of studying under him um, and learns of some of the financial trouble that William is under. Mm-hmm. And so Percy Shelley comes from a pretty wealthy family and says, you know, hey, I can help you out. Um, mm-hmm. I can help you kind of get out of debt. And so this really kind of creates this bond between Percy and William Godwin. When Mary meets Percy, um, Percy is estranged from his wife. Mm-hmm. So he does have a wife, but the, the marriage is kind of on the rocks, according to Percy. Um, and so that kind of opens the door for a little more exploration oh. between Mary and Percy. Yeah. I get, well, I don't, you know, that's okay. <laughs> So uh, just a little bit of background about Percy himself. Um, He does have radical beliefs, obviously, because he's studying under William Godwin. Um, His radical beliefs were really about economics a lot that I found. Mm -hmm. Um, And listen to this. These are the radical beliefs Percy Shelley has that I could find. Now, I say that in just... (laughs) He might have had actually radical beliefs, but this is the one I found that I was like, oh, yeah, that's so radical. (laughs) Um, He... Uh, he believed that the wealthy should help the disadvantaged. (laughs) (laughs) So that was, it was like the most, that was the most radical thing I've ever heard in my life. Well, if you look around today a little bit, maybe it is radical. I guess, I guess so. (laughs) But that, that was considered a radical belief. But so he believes, you know, he, he wants to set about putting Mm -hmm. his, his money where his mouth is. um, And he wants to donate a large sum of his money um, to helping folks get out of poverty, sure. helping, you yeah, know, that great. kind of thing. This does not sit well with his family because his family is very about aristocracy, yes. generational wealth, passing things down from generation to generation. Um, and so they basically threaten Percy and say, we're not going to give you access to your wealth if you keep giving it away. Um, and so eventually this leads to Percy kind of having to tell William Godwin, hey, I can't really help you out of your debt anymore because my family won't give me access to my money to even begin that process. Um, And this kind of sours the relationship between William Godwin Mm -hmm. and Percy Shelley. And you can kind of see how that's a tough situation because, you know, Percy Shelley's in a position where he really thought he could help because he does have access to this wealth, but then his access is cut off because his family... Mm -hmm. Uh, so that puts him in a hard place. But William Godwin, who is in a hard place, felt like he was he saw a glimmer of hope. And then he doesn't have that glimmer of hope anymore. It's just kind of taken away from him. So you can yeah, kind of see yeah. 
how horrible the situation is for for both people. And so that, like I said, kind of sours that that relationship. But behind the scenes, Mary and Percy have been getting along quite swimmingly. (laughs) Um, It is said that they would meet secretly at Mary, uh, Mary's mother's grave. I love the amount of cemeteries going on. Yeah. Remember last time uh, Edgar was always meeting at graves and Mm -hmm. stuff, but now they're meeting at graves. This is like, we need to bring this back. We walk around in graves. We walk around in cemeteries. Yeah. Yeah. This is great. This is great. This is great. So, you know, through getting to know one another, meeting up, blah, 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 (laughs) uh, they fall in love. Yeah. Which is all, but what the hell, Percy? You have a wife. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) Get, get it together. Yeah. And for Mary, she felt really conflicted um, because she idolized her father and she knew that his relationship with Percy was kind of sour and she didn't want to upset him, Mm -hmm. but she was in love with Percy. And so she eventually kind of takes off with Percy um, and they bring the stepsister Claire along with them and they just leave. (laughs) They run away Um, and they say they they just go to France um, and they decide to to travel a little you know a little Mm -hmm. bit around france they leave their family behind um percy's wife is pregnant okay come on yeah so they leave her behind as well uh as 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 you do uh so they they travel throughout france they go to switzerland they're traveling traveling and eventually they run out of money so they have to come back Mm -hmm. um and when they come back mary's pregnant and she tries to go home and her father doesn't want anything to do with her. She's like, you just up and left with yeah. Percy of all people. You come back pregnant. You're, co- no, you're not coming here. Yeah. Um, and so they kind of have to figure it out, move in with one another. Um, and it's at that time, because Percy had made himself known, he was part of kind of an aristocrat family mm-hmm. anyway, but he'd also run around in a lot of intellectual circles with his political beliefs and things like that. Yeah. And so um, when they move in together, they start entertaining a lot of these intellectuals, writers um, at their home. And that kind of opens up that world to Mary even further than just her father's circle. Yeah, they're having folks. salons. They're having, they exactly said that. Mm-hmm. They're having salons. Exactly right. Mary eventually has the baby. Um, it's a daughter, um, but she passes shortly after her birth from convulsions. Oh, jeez. Um, yeah, really sad. Um, and that really affects Mary. And as we kind of dive into Frankenstein, um, you'll see that kind of these experiences of death affect Mary. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of see it come out in her writing. So she gets pregnant a second time um, shortly after she loses her first child. Um, and this time it's a son. Um, and she names him William. So after having William, um, she, Percy, um, and the stepsister Claire, um, all head off to Geneva, um, to meet up with one of their acquaintances, Lord Byron. Yes. Um, and his doctor, John Polidori. Like you do. Like you do. (laughs) Like you do. (laughs) And so they, they head over to Geneva and it's at and this is where the famed story of how Frankenstein really gets started. Yeah. So um, I didn't write this down, so it's going to be kind of fuzzy in my memory. But there was like a certain reason why, but it was raining and cloudy and gray this summer that yeah. they head up to Geneva, yes. and it's something to do with kind of like this volcanic 
activity that was happening, I believe. But it's a really, it's really rainy and cloudy and not really good to be outside. And so it kind of leaves them inside looking for things to do. And one of those things that they decide to do is share ghost stories. Um, And so they're sharing ghost stories and, and they kind of decide, oh, well, we should, we should make our own ghost stories up. Let's all make our own ghost stories up and tell them to one another. And Mary is a little uncertain at first. She's like, I don't know. What am I possibly going to write? Um, and they kind of, you know, nag her a little bit and say, Are you, did you come up with something yet? Did you come up with something yet? And this is happening over the course of some time because they spend some time up there during the summer. Um, and eventually... She says it kind of came to her in a dream, Um, but she had this idea um, of what if a corpse was reanimated? I mean, that's a woman after my own heart right right? there. Right, right. And she said, you know, it came to her in kind of some dreams, and plus Lord Byron and and, uh, Percy and John Polidori were kind of talking about life and death and all of these things. And so those are some things that kind of lended to her thinking about... um, that sort of thing. But that 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 idea comes to her. Um, and she just kind of becomes enthralled with it from that moment on. And this is the impetus for her writing Frankenstein. Wasn't she only 18 or so when... when Around about that age. I mean, I think she must have been <clears throat> 17, 18 when she started writing it because I believe she published it when she was 19. That's right. Yeah, so she was a teenager for sure when she was writing this. So she she starts the process of writing it. She comes up with the idea in Geneva, but it takes her a little while to kind of get it all down on paper and actually publish the book. So she, when they leave Geneva, they come back to London and they find that both, I think it's shortly, maybe shortly after they, they return to London. I'm a little um, cloudy on the time frame. Uh-huh. Um, but Mary's half-sister, Fanny, who we met earlier, um, and then Percy's first wife, both of these women die by suicide. Oh. Yeah. So, again, lots of death happening around Mary as she's in the process of writing this Frankenstein story. Well, that's... Um, yeah. Yeah. His wife, Percy's wife, commits suicide, and then that's why they're able to get married. That's why they're able to get married. Oh. Exactly right. That's the next thing, is they get married in 1816 Ugh, after his wife gross. dies by suicide. Yeah. So they marry, um, and then a couple of years later in 1818, um, Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus, is published. Mm-hmm. Now, when it is first published at the time, um, they publish it under just anonymous. They don't name uh, Mary Shelley as the writer. Right. And so at the beginning, it's kind of mistaken quite often that Percy wrote the novel um, because he did like the foreword mm-hmm. and things sure. like that. Um and there were a lot of ideas that could have been linked back to Mary's father, William Godwin. Mm-hmm. So, and they knew Percy had studied under him. And so it was often um, mistaken that Percy had written Frankenstein. There were also a lot of arguments that I found about Percy's involvement in the shaping of the novel. Okay. Um, some people say that he had a lot of influence. Some people say he didn't. I think... What most scholars have landed on, and from what I've found in my research, even though I am in no way, shape, or form a scholar in this, I think he basically had the same level of involvement in that novel as any kind of editor would sure, have in sure. a novel. Novel. He wrote a foreword, um, and some of the manuscript. In the manuscript of it, you'll see like some line editing, things like that, but nothing that would in any way suggest he had any kind of 
large influence on the novel. You have to speculate that the influence is larger than normal because she was a woman. Yes. Exactly. It was Mount Tambora, by the way, that had a week-long eruption. So it was an eruption. It was an eruption. Okay. Good. Yes. Good. Okay. I did not make that up. It was volcanic activity that made it it so rainy. (laughs) It was indeed. Thank you, Mount Tambora, for bringing us Frankenstein. Exactly. That's what I say. Would she have written it had they not been there? Right? I mean... Who's to say? Who is to say? Yep. So I kind of summarized um, the history of Mary from this point forward because I wanted to talk more about the novel than I and then I do about Mary, but I think you have to talk about both really to get a full understanding of this work. Um, but this is kind of after she writes the novel. So um, I, I kind of wanted to go more quickly through that, that version. Uh, Mary ends up losing two more children after, after this point. And really her only child to survive up to adulthood um, is, is uh, Percy Florence. Um, who's born in 1819. So she has, you know, many children, but the only one who really survives is this Percy Florence. Um, Percy Shelley, her husband, dies in 1822 in a sailing accident. So again, just illustrating the amount of tragedy she's going through. Her later years, really, she continues to work as an author. She has published many more works than just Frankenstein. Frankenstein is her most well-known. But she does have a whole collection. Um, And not only is she working on her own work, but she's also working to promote Percy's work because he wasn't you know uh super popular when he when he passes away and so she's constantly advocating for him and and trying to make sure his work gets out there as well what I find really sad about this time is she finds it kind of difficult to get published because Mm -hmm. I can only assume sexism um because she has to write anonymously a lot in order to get published so her you know it's not her work it's her name Mm -hmm. um that's the problem and one has to wonder because there was some um critical kind of conversation at the time around Frankenstein yeah. after it's found out that Mary Shelley authored mm-hmm. Frankenstein that I you know we will kind of go into that once we get into the the portion on the novel but um I I would say is really sexist rhetoric um so you have to kind of link the two yeah. anything else that she's going to try and publish is going to be hard sure. for her to publish Overall, uh, she, uh, throughout her lifetime, experiences, you know, sexism um, from critics saying, you know, she couldn't possibly have written this without Percy's help, Mm -hmm. you know, not allowing her to publish other work, Um, a lot of slut shaming because she was in a relationship with Percy while he Mm -hmm. was married. Yeah. Um, Did he get slut shamed too? No. Of course, course not. not. Of course not. Um, so she experiences a lot of trauma when it comes to death, a lot of trauma when it comes to, you know, just the, the criticism that she's receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to really wonder um, how that lended to her writing, how that lended to her editing, because she does do some editing to Frankenstein throughout her lifetime um, and, and kind of see how, how that novel functions as a product of the time. So, um, yeah, that's just a little bit about Mary Shelley herself. Okay. Well, you're flipping that page over, yes. chug that, and we're going to try our first Ooh, Magrosa. Yes, I, need to, I need to chug and get some that, of this. Get that candy cig out of there. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The candy cig, it's still not dissolved. 
I don't know how because it's ch- oh. oh. Oh, it is. All right, maybe it is. It's a little. Okay, well. It was a little dissolved. But now I need you to eat that too. Oh, God, you just chugged some, didn't you? Yeah, there was um, candy cig sediment <laughs> at the bottom of that delightful champagne. Okay. Sparkling wine, I should say. So as we dive in to the novel, we're going to try a Bloody Nose Magrosa. A Magrosa. I love that we're calling him Magrosa. Hashtag Magrosa. Okay. Only to be... Now, I'm going to like blind taste this, but you will tell me after yes, I do what I it know is what supposed the flavors to are. taste like. Okay. Yes. Okay. You're only supposed to drink these in the dark of night in a basement. A Magrosa. A Magrosa. Yes. This is where they're... Down the hatch, which... Okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's really good. <laughs> but I feel like the sh- the sparkling wine kind of probably overtook whatever the flavor of that's supposed to be. Well, shall here, let's um let's go a little bloody nose forward. <laughs> more. More <laughs> the bloody nose. I could drink that all day. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. Is it candy apple? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Wild cherry soda. Oh, it's a cherry soda? It is. Well, that's good. Bloody nose. I like it. I mean, I mean that tastes. If that's what a bloody nose tastes like. Hey, it tastes really good. Mm-hmm. I can sip on that for sure. Well, you're gonna have to chug it because we got two more. Oh, we do have two more, and only one glass. Yeah, we do only have one glass. Okay, I'll I'll I'll, I'll be better about chugging <laughs> that as I <laughs> as I spew more information yes. at you. Um, so diving into the actual Frankenstein book um i do i am gonna give a a synopsis of the book so if you haven't read it um this is a spoiler um but you probably will already know it then you should then yeah spoiler you should spoiler you should know yeah um but but first you should know Frankenstein is written as a frame story, which is something that if you haven't read it, you might not know. Um, and basically what a frame story is, it's a story within a story. So it's like, you know, um, you start from one person's perspective, they meet up with someone, that someone starts telling them, you know what just happened to me? That's, yeah. that's a story within a story. Um, it's also written in epistolary form, which is through letters, diaries, that sort of thing. Um, and so Frankenstein is written as, you know, letters, diaries, exchanges between people. Um, so the gist of the story, um, is you start off with Captain Walton and Captain Walton is heading up an expedition into the North Pole, um, on a ship. It's some sort of scientific expedition. And he comes across Victor Frankenstein as he's kind of sailing. Um, and Victor Frankenstein is not in a good way. He's, you know, emaciated, uh, not sure what's happened to him. So they bring him aboard the ship. And Victor tells the captain um, of, you know, what brought him to the North Pole. Um, and he starts telling this story about when he was younger. Um, he was, you know, a young scientific mind, and he was really interested in imparting life on non-living matter. Um, and so that led him um, to create what he calls the creature. Um, and this creature wreaked havoc on Victor's life from the moment he woke up. Um, the creature itself lived a very lonely existence. 
Um, he had to hide in the shadows basically because yeah. people were so afraid of him and he yeah. in turn was afraid of people. Right. Um, and this eventually made him very resentful of Victor mm-hmm. um, because he, he couldn't really make any genuine connections with anybody. Um, and that kind of resentfulness ended up um, leading the creature to want to torment Victor um, and seek revenge on him. Yes. Um, and Victor decides he needs to put a stop to all of this murder um, and mayhem. And so he pursues the creature until they reach the point of the North Pole. Yep. And that's where Captain Walton kind of enters the story. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a very bleak tale um and i'm excited to kind of get into the conversation of what all of that means you know Mm -hmm. um, both in the time it's told but also in the modern day but scholars who've kind of studied this tale say that mary shelley probably had a few influences at the time so obviously her parents work are going to be inspirations Mm -hmm. to her um so you'll see some of the female characters have kind of a feminist lean in her work um you'll see some kind of anarchy inspired political ideology shining through in her work from her par- from her father um you'll see john milton's paradise lost referenced often throughout the book samuel taylor coleridge's the rhyme of the ancient mariner also oh. a heavy influence okay on um, there were also two um, kind of scientists at the time, Erasmus Darwin and Luigi Galvani, um, and they had some ideas about life and death that were probably really influential to Mary Shelley at the time. Um, the poetry of Percy Shelley, obviously, is something that she kind of incorporated in the book. Um, and then, obviously, her own life experiences. As I said, so much death kind of surrounded right. Mary Shelley, um, and particularly the death of her mother and the death of her first child. Um, because you can kind of see the entire story is based on this idea of being separated from your creator mm-hmm. and the kind of agony of that um and you can kind of see mary working through being separated from her mother at an early age right and then from that same perspective being separated from her child Mm -hmm. um you know at an early age again because she was still in her teenage years as, as we talked about this was published when she was you know around 19 um so she's working through a lot of those kind of emotions um throughout the novel um two other folks um that also might have played a part in um, influencing Mary Shelley at the time um, are Giovanni Aldini. Um, Giovanni Aldini made public attempts at human reanimation through electrification. Um, it's there, these are not like clearly linked. The others clearly had a link. Right. She explicitly used them in her work. She knew them personally. Mm-hmm. There is no evidence she knew Giovanni Aldini, but he was operating at the time she wrote this novel. So it would be hard to say she didn't know of Giovanni Aldini. Yeah. Um, and that is such a clear... And such connection. a controversial practice surely would have made the rounds. Exactly. Especially the, in the circle she was running. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the, that uh, could have had influence over the story. Um, the other is Johann Conrad Dippel. 
And uh, Johan made a chemical means to expand the life expectancy of humans, supposedly. Okay. That, that, that's mm-hmm. kind of his claim to fame. Again, she didn't have any clear connection to Johan, but mm-hmm. it is assumed at the time this would have been a big deal and she would have known of the practice. The other thing that many scholars believe is that she inserted some of her own political interpretations into the text. Um, one of her ideas uh, that she really latched onto was this enlightenment idea that society could progress if political leaders used their powers responsibly. <laughs> Come on. So um, you can clearly kind of see that in the novel mm-hmm. with, you know, could have things, could things have turned out differently if Victor Frankenstein acted a little bit differently mm-hmm. um, when he created the creature, which I, I kind of want to get into that with you in a minute. Well, I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Another idea of hers was this romantic ideal, um, and that was uh, misused power could destroy society, obviously. Um, I think that obvious connection in creating something. Are these supposed to be controversial thoughts? Are these considered that then? I don't know if they were considered controversial or not. Um, Potentially they were. Considering considering the time frame. Um, but, but these were some of her firm beliefs that sure. you can clearly see elements mm-hmm. in the story. Some other little fun tidbits. Uh, the name Frankenstein, so Victor's surname, mm-hmm. uh, purportedly came to Shelley in a dream. So that's what she said when she was asked, how did you come up with this? She said, oh, it came to me in a dream. Um, scholars have basically debunked that. So there's no possible way she hadn't heard that name before <clears throat> consciously. Um, because Frankenstein would have been everywhere. Um, especially in the areas she was traveling. There were castles, Frankenstein, cities oh, named okay. Frankenstein. I mean, it was everywhere. So she likely had come across the name, at least maybe not consciously acknowledging it, Mm -hmm. but it would have been in her subconscious, right? That that Frankenstein was a thing. This one cannot be verified, but I think it's interesting to note. Um, There is a a scholar that says that um, they actually visited Frankenstein Castle. Um, and that was in 1814. Mm-hmm. And that was where Johann Conrad Dippel had experimented with human bodies. Okay. So it is possible that they even were at Frankenstein Castle kind of around the time they were traveling around. Mm-hmm. Um, and and she would have been privy to the name Frankenstein and the ideas of it human experimentation at that time and so maybe she carried that subconsciously with well, her yeah. when she created the novel right i mean all of these things would have had some influence sure on her yeah so like i said the first edition was published in 1818 under an anonymous writer but in 1823 uh second edition is actually published and that is when she herself is credited um for the work um and is published under mary shelley um, the novel was met with kind of mixed critical reviews, but it's very popular with the public. So it, it's an extremely popular book, mm-hmm. but criti- critics are a little iffy on it. Um, and I think a lot of that is due to that aforementioned sexism mm-hmm. angle. Um, once they realize that Mary Shelley is behind it, they start questioning, you know, mm-hmm. the validity of the novel right. and, and that sort of thing. And so that that there's a lot of questions there. Um, today, obviously, the book is considered a giant of the Romantic era. Um, it's a giant in Gothic style 
literature. And then as you mentioned earlier in the science fiction genre, for Mm -hmm. sure. Um, It mixes the ideas of enlightenment, which are really tied to science and reason, Mm -hmm. with romanticism, which is tied to passion and the arts. So it kind of, uh, these counterbalancing forces are Mm -hmm. mixed really delicately in the novel. So a couple questions I'd love to kind of dig into with you, Andemic, is what is the main takeaway you have from Frankenstein? Because I can see in kind of diving into kind of the scholarly research on the book. Yeah. You know, a lot of people interpret it as Victor Frankenstein is trying to play God. And for that, he is punished. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But is it, I question, is that really the motive? Because that seems too tied to religion. Um, for me, I feel like, I feel like the bigger question for me is what is our responsibility (laughs) after we come across some sort of discovery? What is our, what is our responsibility then? Because to me, the more egregious thing, I mean, I, I, I'm a little iffy on the plan God situation and how he handled it. Uh, you know, sewing body parts to, right. together kind of thing. Um, but I'm more concerned with the idea of once he brings this creature to life, he's so aghast, he just leaves it. Yeah. He didn't stop to think whether or not he should. Yeah. And he just did. And he acted so selfishly because yes. he was horrified. Yes. He had to remove himself from the situation when he is the whole reason. Yeah, he's the reason it exists. He's created his own misery. Yes. And he owes that creature some sort of compassion. He does. And he owes it to stick around and teach it. Mm-hmm. It just feels to me that's that's the bigger horrific issue yeah. in the novel. And you can kind of, because of that, you know, you can't sympathize with murder ever, right? But in the beginning, before the creature is a murderer, mm-hmm. you can sympathize with his fear of humans and his anger Absolutely. towards Victor. Because he's had to live this very lonely existence. Yes. His creator um, abandoned him. His creator abandoned him, yes. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately, Victor is responsible. The blood is on Victor's hands. Yeah. All of it. Yeah. I think it's so, I think it's so interesting because so many people focus on that kind of um, playing God issue. And that to me is just, that's not really the issue at hand for me. The issue at hand is yeah, what's our responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. After you've created something, what is your, yeah, the discovery. Yeah. Yeah. So um, that kind of brings me to how has this story functioned over time? Because, you know, at, at the, it, it obviously has been popularized, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it started as this literary work. And yeah. then now we've gotten stage, we've got stage plays. We've got other mm-hmm. written works inspired by, we've got movies mm-hmm. that really popularized it, right? Mm-hmm. And it's adapted. It's changed over time. Um, a couple things that have, that have shifted. First, I think the most obvious is, in the in the book, Victor Frankenstein is the creator, and the <laughs> the creature is known as the creature. The, the creature, yeah, and that is totally flipped. Um, Absolutely, yeah, it, it, they're synonymous now. Na- yeah, Frankenstein is Frankenstein. Frankenstein is you know the creature. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I found this really interesting article, though, that kind of chatted through this idea that, you know, is that just, you know, our brains playing a trick on us? Because (laughs) we hear Frankenstein, you know, Frankenstein surely must be the monster. And if you take a look back at the original, Frankenstein was the monster. Was the monster. That's true. Yeah. Frankenstein was always the monster because he's the one who abandoned his creation. So over time, that melding. Could have been our minds. Could have been us. our minds. Just, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're synonymous with one another. Yeah. The creature and the creature who created the creature. Yeah. Creature forward. Creature forward. That's right. That's right. So I thought that, interesting. I thought yeah. that was so interesting. Um, so that's kind of one obvious shift that we see. Um, the, uh, the Another obvious shift, you know, there is in the beginning in the literature, the, the creature's kind of murderous impulse comes from this resentment of Victor. Mm-hmm. In kind of newer versions, there are even some versions where the, the creature is created and a criminal's brain yes. is implanted yes. into into him. Um, and so you have to wonder, you know, mm-hmm. um, you're kind of taking the responsibility off of the creator mm-hmm. in these instances, right? And making it more, the creature, Frankenstein, is inherently bad. Inherently, no, and that's exactly right. Um, because over time he gets more and more brutish and, yes. and quote unquote evil. Yes. And yes, to take the onus off of man for creating it. Exactly. Exactly. What part of that again is our kind of psyche trying to separate mm-hmm. us from yeah. the creature. Yeah. Trying to, uh, uh absolve. Yes. Ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Um, another kind of thing that, that lends itself to that is, you know, in the literary version, mm-hmm. the creature has learned to speak, can talk, yes. ha- can read, it's, yes. you know, very um, educated um, in popular adaptations now. Mm-hmm. It kind of just grunts. It, it yeah. doesn't really know much. It's kind of, um, it's it's not very agile. It kind of is clunky yeah. and, and stomps around. And again, what part of that is trying to dehumanize mm-hmm this creature well tragic humanity doesn't sell yeah but sensational uh monsters do do exactly right exactly right so you can kind of see it's being popularized and in true hollywood fashion popularizing it almost sanitizes it absolutely it does right because it makes it marketable it doesn't talk about those real Mm -hmm. human questions yeah um, re, you know, it, it just makes it more popular. Yeah. It, it's the so creature popular. is heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. He is heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. Um, so kind of where it is today, um, Franken is now kind of seen as this negative term. Um, and, and it's often used as a prescript, a prefix, not prescript, a prefix to describe things that are, um, kind of, not natural or what people deem not natural that's mm-hmm. you know and so you, like you know franken seeds and things like that you know um and okay the question is is that you know 
Frankenstein, it was about scientific exploration Mm -hmm. and it was about what is your responsibility to that. And now it's kind of become used as more of a fear tactic associated Mm -hmm. with this criminal monster that's Mm -hmm. bloodthirsty for no reason. Mm and, you know, is applied to, to questions that we have today. Um, you know, for instance, there's a lot of science in the novel. Um, and then it was kind of asking those big questions about responsibility. And now it's kind of often used to talk about, you know, what scientific advancements we're making when it comes to genetics, mm-hmm. when it comes to mm-hmm. cloning, when it comes to these types of things. Mm-hmm. You see the word Frankenstein thrown around quite a bit. And is that really to detract, to spark fear, Mm -hmm. to make it seem unnatural when really should the question not be, is this unnatural? Because I think, you know, it's science. It's natural. Yeah. Um, It should be, what is our responsibility Mm -hmm. after we Mm -hmm. do this? What is our responsibility? It's ethical. What's ethical? What's ethical? What's moral? And those are questions I I think we don't want to delve <laughs> into, so we detract from them. We do. We do. And I think that's kind of what Frankenstein has morphed into mm-hmm. over time. So um, yeah. the last thing I'll, I'll kind of say before I throw it over to you to talk pop culture stuff is, mm-hmm. um, and this kind of lends itself nicely into that, is Guillermo del Toro. Oh, yeah. Um, I about him. Do you have him down? I do. I just have him down as um, kind of making note that this book was written by a teenager, which is really (laughs) miraculous. Um, And it has themes of like wandering purpose and rejection and pain and things like that. And, you know, could this have been written from anyone else's perspective? I don't know in, in a successful way. Because, you know, that teenage experience is so universal. So um, I just kind of wanted to shout out there because I thought that was fun that Guillermo del Toro kind of remarked on that. So with that, I'm going to get back to this bloody nose pazoos. Okay. Okay. So um, talking about the morphing of Frankenstein, this character has been around for at least 100 years. Mm. Yes. I mean... Uh, so it's bound to fall prey to parody, video games, movies, TV, all manner of derivative works. Um, and it, just like what we just talked about, it's this tragic character boiled down to caricature. Yes. Um, so I'll talk, I'll mention these in a couple different places, but uh, some of the spinoffs through the ages. I mean, Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. I mean, I love Mel Brooks, Young Frankenstein. The Munsters, Rocky Horror Picture Show. You know, so it, it really, there is, there is so much. When I delved into this, it was overwhelming. So I just, I oh, tried yeah. to pick some of the first things and then just some of the things that maybe resonated with me and then some things through the decades. Um, so the very first film adaptation was made by Edison Studios and that was in 1910. It was only 16 minutes long. Um, and here's where we start to see the liberties being taken with the story. The monster was created in a vat, haunted his creator, but then disappeared when Frankenstein found true love. Yeah. That's weird. Uh, and this kind of began that parade of, of adaptations. Um, the next one was 1915, and that was called Life Without Soul. 
And so it's the creation of a soulless man. That can also be, does the creature have a soul? That's a great question. If he feels remorse, I think, and he regretted the the life he led. I think he absolutely has a soul because he does regret the life he led uh-huh. at the end of the book and in the middle of the book when you get the story from the creature's perspective. Yeah. He is kind of hiding mm-hmm. in the shed next to this family and he grows very fond of the family. Yeah. Like he has So he experiences love. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I'll agree. He has a he has a soul. But anyway, so um and the actor at the time his name was Percy Standing. Um he was very popular. He didn't he actually wore very little makeup for the the part. And then the first one, it was like this grotesque figure. Um but in the end of this one, it turns out that a man had fallen asleep after reading Shelley's book and the whole thing had been a dream. Oh, well, then there's at least a connection to the book. There. I mean, yeah. The book uh, I mean, a very literal connection. <laughs> to the yeah, book, but a connection. OK, so then enter Universal Studios and we talked at length about the Universal Monsters. Um, the first sound adaptation of the story was in 1931. Um, and the monster was played by Boris Karloff. Um, and this movie, I think, is the one that really solidified what the monster was going to look like moving forward in many of the pop culture references. That uh, flat head, bolts in the neck, uh, stitched neck, uh, lumbering character. Um So there were a lot of movies that followed that through the 30s and 40s that Universal did. Um, and then, you know, in the same over, over across the pond, Hammer, uh, horror films, Hammer House of Horror. I love the Hammer films. Um, Christopher Lee, um, playing the monster was, is, is most excellent. And here is, um, the, the Guillermo del Toro quote that I was thinking of. Um, he said that Christopher Lee brought a much more obscenely alive quality Hmm. to the creature. Um, I wish I would have come up with that because obscenely alive because it is true. He's living. He's a living creature. You should have have right. reverence for living creatures. Right. But he's obscenely alive because he mm. was he wasn't alive. Right. He was wholly created out of parts. Yeah. Mix. I don't know. Yeah. Don't know mix of parts. If I'm saying that right, but um, he he wholly nailed the emptiness of that character. And that harkens back to the original creature a little more. Um, and this was this was the 1957 uh, Curse of Frankenstein. Mm. Um, so depictions vary, like we talked about. Sometimes he's a mindless brute, and other times he's this tragic hero, um, which, again, I'll just keep hammering that. This is actually closest to Shelley's version of the creature. Um, so then we get into some... Oh, some fun titles and some nonsense. So in the fifties and sixties, we had things, uh, movies like I was a teenage Frankenstein and Jesse James meets Frankenstein. Uh, excuse me. Frankenstein's daughter. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, how to make a monster. Um, and lots of these versions bring in the flavors of the time. So in the fifties and sixties, nuclear power, um, grotesque science experimentation, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Uh, and one of my personal favorites, and I had completely forgotten about this, but I loved this movie as a kid. It was called The War of the Gargantuas. 
and it was a Japanese film, and they used samples from the creature cells to grow two, two giant humanoid brother monsters. Um, one strong and gentle that was raised by the scientists in his youth, and then the other, a violent and savage creature who devours humans. Oh, wow. And so, of course, the two monsters eventually battle and just fuck up Tokyo like they do. Um, I love that movie. I will never forget the red and green gargantuas. So good. So good. That's awesome. That's awesome. so then we go into the 70s and 80s, Dracula versus Frankenstein. Ah, yes. Um, a lot of a lot of the world's uh, crossing crossing paths. Right. Did you Did you want to ask a question or something? Or you just no, oh. I just decided I probably shouldn't chew into the microphone because I'm still <laughs> munching on this cheesecake. Um, so I just paused to take a breath. <laughs> to take a breath after shoveling it into my mouth. I mean, and she is. It's it's a literal shovel. She it has is. a little I, tiny yeah. silver shovel. I have a tiny shovel. <laughs> And I'm shoveling it in there. And it's delicious. Oh, we're, we're having another. Yep. We're going to go for Magrosa number two, the dragon drool. Oh, I'm, I'm excited for very this. curious about what you're going to think about this. I'm excited because I like the, the, the liquid, because I don't know what flavor it is. <laughs> it is dark. So it reminds me of kind of like a cola or root beer situation. But we're, we're going to see well, if I, if that I is mean, correct. We'll Okay. I hope dragon drool tastes like root beer. Down the hatch, witch. Oh, Oh, that's a licorice-y. It is. Black licorice soda. Hmm. I don't... I don't like it as much as the cherry with the... Now, this is, again, a magrosa, so (laughs) it is with the champagne. But I have to Mm -hmm. say, I might like that soda on its own. Yeah, let me try the soda on its own because I like the licorice flavor and I feel like it might be not as sweet as the cherry. Yeah, I think you're right. I love black licorice. Oh, yeah, on its own. Good. It's not as sweet um, as the cherry one. And I think... So making out with a dragon is a good idea because their drool tastes like black licorice. I'm not mad about dragon's drool. No. I'm not mad about it. And this is not bad. No, the, it's that, not bad with the champagne the either. Drop of the champagne. It's just not my. It's just not as good, in my opinion, as the cherry one was. No, <laughs> but I still drink it. <laughs> okay, so back to it. So in the seventies and eighties, you know, I, I said we had the 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 universe is crossing paths like Dracula and Frankenstein in each other's worlds, and then we get you know werewolf, and they all come in at some point. Um. So the Dracula versus Frankenstein, it was a very low budget movie where Dracula has a descendant of Frankenstein revive the creature for his own um, bidding. Um, so then we have Frankenstein 80, where a mon- the monster is driven by lust and his body keeps rejecting the parts, the oh, body geez. parts. You can imagine I can where that's going to go. Um, okay, so then we we talked about Young Frankenstein. That's Mel Brooks. I love Mel Brooks, the parody. And that one is actually based on the the three Frankenstein films that Boris Karloff did. Mm. Um, it's hilarious. Uh, then we have Frankenstein's Great Aunt Tilly, The Monster Squad. The, the list is endless. So then I'll move into the 90s and 2000s. Frankenstein Unbound. Uh, a scientist travels back in time to meet Victor Frankenstein and the creature, as well as Mary Shelley herself. 
I mean. Oh, wow. Super clear connection there. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> I mean, come right? on. Um, and this in the 90s, 1994, Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein is probably one of the most famous and most popular. Uh, I remember when it came out, I saw it a few times in the theater. And um, the creature, I think the creature was very much um, like in in the book. Mm. Um, very loyal to the book. And now lots of other liberties were taken, but the creature was so tragic. I mean, I'm pretty sure I cried. I know. Yeah. And it was, I think it was played by Robert De Niro was the creature. I think so. And Kenneth Branagh played Victor Frankenstein. I think you're right. Um, but, but, but again, they all, they all take liberties to, to do what they want. But for me, just thinking about the novel and thinking about all of it, I feel most protective of the creature, portray the creature properly, or you lose the whole intent. Exactly. Of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, Frankenstein versus the creature from blood. Oh my God. Hello, Magrosa. Uh, the creature from blood cove. Uh, I Frankenstein. I mean, um, and then there was one I hadn't heard of. It's called Mary Shelley's Frankenhole. <laughs> it's an adult that... stop motion animated series. <laughs> it was on Adult Swim. Well, the word Frankenhole really sounds like Adult Swim. It really kind of does. So it only aired 20 episodes, but uh, Victor Frankenstein masters immortality. And creates an Einstein Rosenbridge. Um, he actually he creates lots of them. Those are wormholes, um, but they call them Frankenholes. And these Frankenholes are somewhere in Eastern Europe, um, but through every time period in the past and the future. So this allows all manner of historic figures to come through and seek him out. And I can tell you what I'm going to have a Frankenhole after eating all that cheesecake. Uh, my Frankenhole is batting down the hatches. <laughs> Because mama lactose intolerant. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're going to have to take some serious lactate for that Frankenhole. I'm going to have to run home. <laughs> okay. So um, then, you know, other other parodies, cartoons, Warner Brothers, The Devil and Mr. Hare, where Fra uh, Frankenstein monster robot beats the crap out of the Tasmanian devil and Bugs Bunny. Oh, my gosh. And, okay, so let's just say this out loud. Frankenberry cereal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And... Uh, some musical parodies, um, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, um, yes. Dr. Frankenfurter, uh, yes. <laughs> Tim Curry, yes. gotta love that, Frankenweenie, the Munsters, Adam's Family, just oh, yeah. on and on and all, on. So, yeah, I mean, you can just see how it's taken to this place where it will sell. Right. Where the original tragedy of the creature is um, kind of lost. I don't think people want to be confronted with that. No. Um, I, I would agree. They it, It's very human. Mm -hmm. It it raises some big questions mm -hmm. about ethics and morality and responsibility mm -hmm. that sometimes humans like to mm -hmm. not address. Well, right. And I mean, even on the basis, base, most basic human emotion, no one wants to be abandoned. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting because I think that's the element of the book that makes it timeless mm -hmm. because it is a question that we still struggle with mm -hmm. to this day. Um, but it's also the book part of the book that I think is lost on pop culture. Mm -hmm. um, it is. It, it absolutely I, is. I think it's been turned into something different, which 
I I am of the camp, you know, take your creative liberties and you should always turn stories into something that's yeah. relevant for the day. But I think that it's still important not to lose sight of what the original intent so too. was so that we can kind of still reckon with that question. Yeah. So that's um that's just a, a little picture of Frankenstein. Of Frankenstein. Heck yeah. And it's, I mean, still to this day, a very good read. I would highly recommend it. I mean, the language is a little difficult to get through because it was written, you know, in the 1800s. But yeah. if you can kind of get through that, it's a really good um, story that raises some really good questions Absolutely. overall. And it's still kind of spooky. When yeah, the, especially is. when the monster is kind of stalking its mm-hmm. victims. It's very spooky. So I would highly recommend. Excellent. Highly recommend. So kind of moving on to Dracula. Dracula. Um, I'll again start off with talking a little bit about the mastermind behind the monster. And that would be Bram Stoker in this instance. Um, So Bram Stoker was born on November 8th, 1847 in Dublin, Ireland. Um, His parents were Abraham Stoker and Charlotte Matilda Blake Thornley. He was one of seven children. Good Lord. So big old Irish family there. Um, He was, uh, it it was really interesting to read because he was bedridden with illness up until the age of around seven and it went undiagnosed. So to this day, people still don't know what Bram Stoker was ill with, but he was bedridden. So he was not up walking. Hmm. He was in bed this entire time. Um, At the age of seven, he makes this kind of miraculous recovery Mm -hmm. um fully recovers no one knows what was wrong but at seven he's up and about in kind of chatting with brahm stoker about that scholars found that you know that time he found to be some time he was really able to think creatively um that's what really got his imagination going because that's so often the case yeah he wasn't able to get out and experience Mm -hmm. so he made up worlds in his head yeah and he wasn't distracted by screens or bombarded with constant information yeah yeah that's so often the case yeah Yeah. the other interesting thing is not only was he kind of bedridden and made to kind of use his imagination more um but in ireland at the time one a, a very popular practice was bloodletting um which was basically the practice of withdrawing blood from a patient to cure illness and so as part of his treatment um they would bloodlet him um and one has to wonder if you know at an early age watching blood being drained (laughs) out of him was influential i mean yeah you can kind of make that connection he was at all delirious Uh, this person just shows up in the room with a needle pain yeah Drawing blood out of him. Yeah, I mean, the clear connection there. Another thing that was happening at this time is his mom would often, obviously, come to his bedside and tell him tales, Um, and so he, she would tell him Irish lore, Um, and and, you know, um, kind of this magical element to things, and so that could have been something that influenced him later in life Mm -hmm. to believe in kind of these kind of supernatural ideas. So lots of stuff happens in his childhood that could have led him to having more imaginative thinking later on in life. So eventually, um, after he fully recovers, um, he does attend university uh, at Trinity College in Dublin. He gets both his bachelor's and his master's degree there. Um, And it's while he's in college, he gets interested in the theater. 
Um, eventually, he starts work as a theater critic for the Dublin Evening Mail. Um, and that is a publication that is co-owned by Sheridan, Leaf, uh, Sheridan La Fanu. This Sheridan La Fanu actually is, uh, becomes an author of one of the very first vampire novels. Um, and that's Carmilla. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Which is published in 1872. I came across that one. Yeah, was- and it's one of the earliest vampire uh, official vampire uh-huh. l- pieces of literature out there. Um, so I would recommend that one. So, you know, through his... And, and so you have to wonder if that influenced Bram Stoker in any way. You know, he he's, has full access to the Sheridan La Fanu, who eventually publishes Carmilla. Um, so there could definitely be um, sc- some connections there with vampirism. Um, so it's through his reviews that he attracts the attention of Henry Irving. Um, he reviews one of Henry's performances in a more favorable light, and that kind of makes, you know, Henry fond mm-hmm. of him. Mm-hmm. So the two become kind of fast friends. So uh, eventually, Stoker moves to London with his wife, Florence Balcom. Um, and they move to London so that uh, Stoker can manage Henry Irving's theater, the Lyceum Theater. Mm. Um, and it's at this post he kind of takes up for a, a long time, for about 27 years, he works as this theater manager. And, and kind of, you know, during his time at the Lyceum Theater, he, you know, becomes um, privy to all sorts of famous folks, writers, um, intellects. Um, creates relationships with them, and he actually becomes a member of London's high society. So he's got lots of folks um, kind of coming in and out of his life that he's building relationships with this time. Um, He also is traveling with Henry Irving. Um, So he's traveling to everywhere Henry Irving is performing. Particularly, uh, Stoker has a fondness for America when he travels to America. Mm -hmm. So um, one place they never visit, though, is Eastern Europe, which I find to be fascinating. Yeah, they never go to Eastern (laughs) Europe. Okay. Um, Which will come up later, too. It's very interesting. And so while... uh, he he writes for most of his life. You know, he's a critic, obviously, so he wrote a little that in that capacity. But he also wrote just you know fictional tales. Um, but it is he really began writing Dracula in 1895, and he begins writing Dracula while he's on holiday at Cruden Bay in Scotland. Um, and so there's some speculation as to how this particular holiday may have influenced some of the elements of Dracula. Um, when Stoker was in Scotland, he stayed at the Kilmar- Kilmarnock Arms Hotel. Um, and it is said that nearby that hotel, um, Slane's Castle sits. Um, and that is really how he crafted the visual inspiration for Castle Dracula. Because again, Stoker never visits <laughs> Eastern Europe. Um, so they think that, the, you know, the castle is based on the Slane's Castle. Before he begins his work on Dracula, Stoker meets an Armin Vambery. Um, and Armin is a Hungarian Jewish writer. Um, and it's through his conversations with Armin that Stoker kind of becomes inspired by this culture and lore and the image of the Carpathian Mountains. Uh. And so they think that might be the reason he sets the story in Transylvania. Um, obviously, and there's a lot of good vampire lore 
um, in the in that uh, Eastern European culture. Um, and he also starts kind of looking into uh, Eastern European folklore at this time as well because okay. of these conversations. So that's one of the reasons a lot of folks think that this is why the story kind of settles in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, the title character, Dracula, so many people think that Dracula is based on Vlad the Impaler. Yes. Scholars say it's really only the name and maybe a couple other details, but everything else is not based on Vlad the Impaler. Vlad, uh, originally, the count was to be named Wampir. Uh, until uh, Stoker came across Vlad and some of his research that he was doing in Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how it came to be um, that the, the character was named Dracula. So eventually, as he kind of writes this novel, he publishes it in 1897, and it's very positively received. Um, it, too, is in that epistolary form. Mm-hmm. So it's diaries and journal entries. Um, and I find this really interesting. The typescript for this novel is found in a barn in Pennsylvania. So he did travel to America often, mm-hmm. so that's not necessarily unlikely, but it yeah. is just found the typescript. <laughs> it's just in this barn in Pennsylvania. It's found in the 1980s. What? Yeah. So, you know, well after the, the novel's published, um, and it is found because that typescript is found that the novel was originally supposed to be called The Undead, and it was a mm-hmm. last minute change to Dracula. So eventually, you know, he publishes Dracula. He works on a couple other um, programs, so on and so forth. And eventually, Bram Stoker passes away in 1912 um, in London. So that's a little short history of Bram Stoker himself Mm -hmm. um, and, and kind of what influenced him to write Dracula. Now, the story, um, like I said, it was written in, a, in, a, in that epistolary form. Um, I think one can draw the conclusion that Stoker, Stoker kind of relied on that form because he was a critic. Mm-hmm. So he had a lot of experience in writing those types of forms. And so I think that's why he was so successful in doing it. Um, but just as a little synopsis of the story, um, Jonathan Harker is one of the main characters. Um, and he first encounters Count Dracula at Dracula's castle in Transylvania. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jonathan Harker first goes to this castle because he believes he's just creating, he's helping this real estate deal. Right, through. right. Count yes. Dracula wants to move to London. Yep. Jonathan Harker travels from London to kind of help see this deal through. Um, a few encounters in that castle kind of lead Jonathan to figure out that Count Dracula is indeed a vampire. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but eventually, after he's found out, he kind of leaves Jonathan behind because Jonathan kind of falls into the state of yes. disbelief. Yes. Um, so Dracula leaves him behind and he he himself sets sail for London. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Jonathan Harker ends up in a, in a hospital in Budapest. Mm-hmm. Um, so once in London, um, the Count stalks a woman named Lucy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lucy is friends with the Wistenra. name. Lucy Wistenra. I think something uh, like that. that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Lucy is friends with a woman named Mina, who is actually the fiance of Jonathan Harker. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mina leaves to go be with Jonathan after she finds out he's in this Budapest um, 
hospital. Kind of while Count Dracula is stalking Lucy, the character of Van Helsing enters. <laughs> um, and he is known to use kind of science and reason to figure out what's going on. And he eventually figures out that Dracula is a vampire. But unfortunately, that's a little too late for Lucy. She's already turned by right. the time. Yes. Um, and so once Jonathan and Mina uh, return to London, they meet up with Van Helsing and they all kind of join in this campaign to, to kill Dracula. So that, that that's kind of a brief synopsis of the story. Obviously, lots of spooky stuff happens mm-hmm. in between. Um, but that that's the basic gist. Um, so when it was first published, published, it wasn't instantly considered a bestseller. It was met with really favorable critical reviews, mm-hmm. but it wasn't a popular um, work. Um, a, one really famous kind of author at the time who was a super fan of Dracula <laughs> was actually Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Ah, oh, yes. Yeah, he actually wrote to Stoker saying how much he enjoyed the story. So he was a super fan of Dracula. Um, unfortunately, because it wasn't a very popular work, even though it was considered to be a good work, mm-hmm. um, it didn't bring in much money for Stoker. So he actually died um, poor because he was not bringing in much they money. so often do. I know. I know. Um, after his death in 1922, um, the first movie adaptation, Nosferatu, mm-hmm. uh, comes out, um, which I know we've discussed before. And that brought on a lot of legality um, kind of conversations. But it, what it really did beyond the legalities is it popularized the story. So that's when you start to see Dracula becoming popular. Exactly. Um, and then in 1931, the American version mm-hmm. with Bela Lugosi is, is um, created really popularizing it and one fun fact the book has never been out of print so it's it's been in right. quite the demand um since in- inception so that's a little bit about the book it, it, and i wanted to kind of talk about how dracula has functioned over time itself as well um especially because i found it so interesting that it wasn't a popular tale when it was first released mm-hmm. so so how did it catch hold that's what i want to yes. know what what about uh, it's a little easier to see how the concept of Frankenstein yes. and the novel became a classic. Yes, I agree. What sent this into classic status? I totally, that is something I, I want to talk out with you tonight too. Because, so when Victorian readers, because that's when it was published, mm-hmm. um, kind of got their hands on this book, they just viewed it as an adventure tale. <laughs> they wow. didn't really, you know, yeah. see a lot of horror in it. We see it as a horror tale, right? But my big question is why, not only why is this a classic? I mean, it is. I read it and it is a classic, but I'm. I, it's hard to put my finger on the pulse of that. But why is this the book that popularized the vampire? Because yeah. the vampire existed well beyond this book. Mm-hmm. It was in so many folk tales. Mm-hmm. And it was in a ton of Eastern European folktales. That's yes. kind of where the, the vampire is born, right? But it's also found in folktales throughout the globe, mm-hmm. beyond Eastern Europe. Um, so what was it about this book that popularized the vampire? And one of the things that I found kind of in researching and rereading a little bit is that the story really plays with juxtaposition really well. So kind of these conflicting ideas. Um, so you get this image of a vampire living in dirt mm-hmm. and in this dreary castle and kind of crawling out of the ground. This really mm-hmm. macabre mm-hmm. Um, image. And then 
you also have that juxtaposed with this kind of su- alluring seduction of the vampire Mm -hmm. and so it's like how can you pit the macabre with the alluring Mm -hmm. together um i think that is something that probably attracts readers um this idea of science and data with van helsing versus folklore and culture and just these beliefs Mm -hmm. about the vampire you know um the setting itself you're in this kind of like very modern london setting and pitted against you know these rolling hills and landscapes in in Transylvania where the castle is set. And so you're always playing with these two very opposite Mm -hmm. ideas, uh, modernity versus traditional. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that 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 kind of is in itself alluring to the reader because it, it leaves th- that kind of in itself is a technique that leaves the reader uneasy mm-hmm. but yeah. not quite sure why you're yeah. uneasy but you are uneasy um and i think that is something this novel does successfully yeah is it because i'm sitting here trying to come up with something smart to say around that but yeah i don't know why i'm uneasy yeah but and i think it's just because it's it's never letting you land in one place too long and it doesn't favor one over the other. Exactly. It's not presenting either in a positive or negative no. way. It's just this is what it is. Yeah. So you're maybe, maybe I'm supposed to figure out who to root for. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting um, to kind of figure out that piece of Dracula. Um, but then I think another interesting thing is kind of, the topics it discusses, um, mm-hmm. or at least alludes to, uh, during its time. So especially during the Victorian era, some questions that Dracula kind of brings up. So first of all, um, questions around sexual disease at the time, because remember we're in the 1800s, yeah. um, and that is kind of played out through this idea of bloodborne diseases and things like that. So um, how we're kind of like transmitting things from one to another. That's kind of how vampirism is transmitted. Yes. Um, And the other uh, kind of interesting take is this idea of independent womanhood. Um, So you see that play out with Lucy and Mina. Yes, right. Uh, Lucy is this very kind of new woman they categorized her as mm-hmm. uh and i would say that just means she's more independent mm-hmm. and you know mina is more traditional right. she relies on jonathan um and it's interesting because mina flees to jonathan comes home she is stalked a little by count dracula yeah. but eventually she's able to escape right uh and lucy, lucy succumbs. succumbs because she's a new woman. She dares to be modern. She dares to be modern. Exactly. So there's kind of some questions about feminism mm-hmm. and that sort of thing going on as well. And then the last is advancements of science. And so you see Van Helsing's character particularly play into this. Um, but he's able to kind of track Dracula and mm-hmm. figure out what Dracula is up to through the advancements of the science technology Mm -hmm. at the time. So there's kind of this championing Mm -hmm. of science going on as well. So that's kind of how it functioned in the Victorian era. Um, But I think, I think how it has morphed over time, I think the main themes have remained the same of kind of that juxtaposition 
um, of the macabre and the alluring mm-hmm. of the modernity and the folk. I mm-hmm. think those are, those I think could be considered universal themes. Yeah, I think so. Um, which could classify it as a classic. Um, but I think some of the stuff is a- almost lost uh, in the modern day depictions, mm-hmm. I would say. Like, I don't know if the science factor comes into play when I think about modern day vampire stories. Um, in fact, I don't think that science, I think it is the reliance on the folk more than on the science in modern day. Yeah. Depiction. And on the myth and the legends yeah. surrounding it. And vampires have become highly sexualized, highly sexualized. <laughs> um, well, and sex sells. Yeah. Uh, and, and even I would say even the the macabre, the horror of a vampire is has been somewhat removed. Yeah. The horror of what they are. I would agree. It's almost. Um, it, it, I don't want to say it's kind of like the Twilight. Oh, uh, yeah. Situation. But I think it's beyond Twilight. I think Twilight mm-hmm. is just one of many stories that do that sort of thing. Right. Where it's mm-hmm. like the vampire becomes we know it's dangerous, but mm-hmm. we're, you know, attracted to attracted it. You're attracted to, to the it. danger. Right. They're cool. They're chic. You right. want to be one. Yes. You don't even think about what they are and what they do, what they do. or the the. Uh, the excruciating agony of immortality. You don't think about that. Right. Killing to live, to live undead. Is that that juxtaposition coming into I guess so. I I think so. That's interesting. (laughs) And so maybe, I mean, hear me out here. Mm -hmm. Maybe the reason this is considered a classic is less because of the content of the story but the craft of the writer. The craft of the writer. And we we just talked about that with Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. The craft of the writing. Yeah. He was, Bram Stoker was able to play so successfully with certain ideas juxtaposed against one another mm-hmm. that it just works mm-hmm. throughout time. It doesn't matter what's considered tradition it doesn't matter what's considered modern it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter what's considered sexy now versus what's considered macabre as Mm -hmm. long as we're pitting these two overarching ideas together it is a Mm dracula-esque tale yeah i think maybe we've hit on something i think we've had to have hit on something right yeah at least that's the camp i'm gonna take as to why it's a classic i'm gonna agree yeah and sometimes you don't know you don't know who to root for. Yeah, because I root for the vampire a lot of the time. A lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's even likable in the mm-hmm. original. Yeah. Count Dracula is likable yes. in Dracula. There's a, there is a, a, some semblance of a sense of humor there or, mm-hmm. wow. So tell me, how has he been popularized? Well, um... Let me say the three letters again. S-E-X, obviously. <laughs> well. um, which, for me, I don't like that. I I don't like that piece of it. That's kind of why I like, I mean, I love Anne Rice's vampires. And we're going to talk about, we're going to do a whole episode on Anne Rice at yes, some point. Yes, absolutely. But that they're sensual. They're not sexual. And there's sure. a difference there. Sure, yep. 
Um, and that, that can, I can get on board more with that, the allure of that, because they're undead, they're immortal. Why would they need that sexual uh, piece? I, it, it doesn't make sense yeah. to me. Now, I'm sure some people out there are like, what? But How dare you? Yeah. Well, well because, you know, then you've got, uh, what's his name? Edward and Bella breaking Very, a freaking yeah. room apart. Yeah. You know, I, I, it's just, that's just not my, that's just not what I think of when I think of a vampire. That's sure. Not, that's not what I want to think of. Um, so, along the same vein as Frankenstein, cartoons, comedies, drama, straight up horror, uh, and yes, of course, serial Count Chocula. Um, sometimes he's portrayed as a brutal killer other times again as a tragic hero um, and as a suave lover lover there are more than 200 films um, that feature Count Dracula and that is uh, a number second only to Sherlock Holmes wow yeah I thought that was fascinating. That is. Um, and of course, at the center of all this subculture is Transylvania, which is almost synonymous with vampires now. But then I, I, I started to think that um, what made it a classic, and uh, and I like where we landed. I feel I feel really good about where we landed with it. But then I also started to think the mythology became bigger than mm. the story. And yeah. the story was like lightning in a bottle. And it just, it got caught in the wake of that mythology um, yeah. as it as it moved forward through time. Yeah. And just kind of became, it, it's the one that became synonymous with Dracula. And you have to think too, there was so much information out there because vampires themselves were a thing mm-hmm. in Eastern European culture. Some of that probably had to have passed on. Mm-hmm. That wasn't featured in Dracula along with Dracula to kind of create some of these new takes and versions. Well, the whole notion that uh, Count Dracula was Vlad Tepes, was Vlad the Mm -hmm. Impaler. And Bram Stoker himself said with the name and maybe a couple of things here and there, he wasn't. Right. But that is so ingrained in the mythology now. Right. Right. Of of Dracula. Right. I, I, that blew my mind when, because um, I I actually didn't know that myself that he wasn't actually based. Yeah, he wasn't based on Vlad the Impaler. But that every movie, um, every movie basically portrays him as that right that person right. So the book was kind of like a springboard. It's the foundation of of one set of mythology around who Dracula. Right. I, I guess maybe may and maybe that's why it why it's had longevity. Um, but I really like where we landed. I like where we landed yeah, I too. I think like that. I think we. I think we. I think we hit the nail on the head. Someone. Someone write a scholarly article <laughs> about that. So in all these, uh, moving forward, all these derivations and and different uh, adaptations, not all the characters tend to make it. Van yeah. Helsing typically does. Um, Jonathan Harker, Mina, Lucy. Oftentimes they do, but sometimes. Even they are switched yeah. and combined as characters. Lucy and, and Mina. Yeah. And yeah. Jonathan Harker and Renfield yeah. also, which is weird. Very weird. Um, that one doesn't make sense to me. No. Um, they are so 
not the same person. Not the same. Not that Lucy and, and Nina sir, are the same no. or any of them are the same. No, but, but those two serve two completely different functions. Stark opposites, correct. Stark. Right. Well, but I guess so are Mina and Lucy. But Yeah, they are meant to be stark opposites. So. I mean, yeah. I mean, come on. Anyway, so uh, like we talked about, the first adaptation was Nusrat 2 in 1922. Right. Um, uh, we... And of course, that led to um, the legal the legal issues, and the Stoker estate sued and won, and basically had most of the copies of Nosferatu destroyed. Yeah. There were still a couple, but uh, most of them uh, went bye bye. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, 1931, Dracula. Right. Uh, Bella Lugosi. This film was the one that was credited with starting that Universal monster series of the yeah. 30s and 40s. Yep. Um. There was one from 1970. Count. It's called Count Dracula by Jesus Franco, um, and it took huge liberties with the plot, with the original plot. But the, can, can we even say that anymore? Because it it's, it's morphed so much. It's morphed, it's so, morphed much. so much. Anyway, um, but from that original story, anyway. But the character, at least, they're they're true to the character in that. Um, he grows younger as he feeds on blood in the movie. Um, and this this Dracula and in the Hammer film Dracula, Christopher Lee stars as the Count. Okay. And he is my guy. I remember when I was a kid, um, the Christopher Lee uh, Dracula scared the crap out of yeah. me. And I still have a memory of him turning to dust on the steps and all that's left is his little iron cross or yep. his little medallion, whatever that thing is. And, and and the eyes and the the mouth oh so oh, good yeah. so good um so and many people will know obviously the Francis Ford Coppola version um mm -hmm. 1992 which was called Bram Stoker's Dracula Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder Keanu Reeves ah. uh play Jonathan Harker yeah um and it takes some liberties um like the subplot that Mina Harker was somehow the reincarnation of Dracula's long lost love. Right. That's not real. And and also the whole notion that he was Vlad the Impaler. Right. I mean. <laughs> I mean, not real. Um, but in this, he's portrayed as more of a tragic hero instead yeah. of a villain. Um, but at the same time, being cruel and malevolent. Exactly. That juxtaposition. Yeah. Very mm -hmm. interesting. Mm -hmm. But it is said to be actually um maybe the most faithful adaptation to the yeah. original book um there are so many oh my god i mean there's so many i again I, oh, I, sure. I i just i didn't know what to pick and choose so i just sort of started spouting some things sure obviously mel brooks who i said i love dracula dead and loving it mm. <laughs> I mean, love that title. warner brothers included dracula but the, the dracula uh in warner brothers tended to be somewhat of a buffoon and he would turn into a bat and then they'd smack him with fly swatters and oh, then gosh. he would bumble around and go bleh, 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 you know. <laughs> no, no. Um, there, there are spoofs, uh, musicals, Dracula, Spectacula. What? Yeah, it's a musical. Oh my gosh. Um, Dracula, another bloody musical. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. There's a Dracula rock opera. Oh, um um in dracula reborn dracula moves to la and buys property i mean so it's you know it's love that sometimes it may just even be dracula in name only dracula and that he owner. and that he bites you know he sucks blood um and i have to give a personal shout out to dario argento's dracula 3d oh, God. not great however 
Dario Don. Argento did inspire Romero to write Dawn of the Dead. So yeah. I will forgive him many things. Forget, forgive. Um, Billy the Kid versus Dracula. Oh. Yeah. Blackula. Batman Dracula. Love at first bite. <laughs> oh, what a good one. <laughs> um, there was one interesting spin that I actually really liked. Um, called Dracula 2000. This was Wes Craven's uh, movie. Okay. okay. Um, and Dracula is actually Judas Iscariot. And he was forbidden by God to die following his betrayal of Christ. Oh. I thought that was completely unique and, and fascinating. That is unique and fascinating, and I haven't seen it. Gerard Butler. Oh, I should watch it. Yes. Yeah, I, it's worth a watch. Yeah. Just, just because you don't find... It's hard to find unique plots anymore. And that yeah. one to me was. That is unique. Um, it sounds unique. There's uh, Shadow of the Vampire, and that was mm-hmm. with John Malkovich about mm-hmm. the making of Nosferatu. Yeah. Um, there's Anime Castlevania. I think that's even on Netflix. Oh, yes. Quintonymous. Big uh, fan. Really? Big fan. Excellent. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my personal favorites, which is completely lame, but Once Bitten. It's an 80s movie, comedy starring a very young Jim Carrey and the vampire hones in on him um, because this, and the vampire's a woman and she needs a virgin blood to remain young. Oh, so um, there's a dance battle and everything. So it's, you know, I love a good dance battle. Yeah. It's, (laughs) it's pretty good. So the same sort of situation, people, Take from the classics what sells, yeah, and just adapt it through adapt time. It. Adapt it through time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I kind of bring bringing it full circle. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a there's a need and beauty in doing that and adapting all of these stories to tell the tales of our own age. Mm-hmm. But I think that with both of these works and with many of the works you kind of cited at the beginning of your story. There's not, you know, the the original stories have been written in a way, whether it be through the craft or the content, mm-hmm. um, written in a way where they are able to kind of transcend time mm-hmm. and place. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would just say, kind of wrapping um, our discussion of Dracula and Frankenstein, that if you have not read either of these books, again, both of them are, you know, you are going to have to get across, uh, through some language um, because they were written in the 1800s um, so that, you know, the language is a little heady um, at points. But I think if you can get past that. It is well worth it. It is well worth it. To see, to see, so you can compare for yourself. Exactly. The original versus what is now. Exactly. Yeah. I would agree. I would totally agree. Okay. Is this our last? Okay. Yeah. This is the last one. And I saved this one for last to, um, to kind of usher in the what the hell because I feel right. like this one's gonna make you go what the hell? What the hell? Yeah, yeah. So this is it. the pirate. pirate this is pirate piss. Magrosa. Magrosa. And it's scary because you poured it in there and it did not change the color. <laughs> it did of not this, at all. This one looks like pee. Oh my god, no. Yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad at all. What's it supposed to be flavored? It's banana soda. Banana soda. Mm-hmm. Weird. That actually, I get, I get it now. I get that back end of the, banana a little bit. But you know, banana what, backward. Banana back, <laughs> Banana backward. <laughs> um, I think it works because this it's cidery maybe. So the banana and the apple 
ish flavor I'm getting from the opals and bananas. I mean, they go together. That's right. That's actually really good. I like that's it. my favorite one. I think it's really good. Wow. What the hell that this known? is my favorite one. Who would have known? So strap on a candy sig. All right. And let's get to what the hell. What the hell? You want to you want to start? Yeah. Oh, wait. I wanted to just mention one oh, more please thing. Please do. Please do. Um, when we talk about, we're going to um, at some point talk about horror comics. Mm-hmm. And um, George Romero did a series of comics called Empire of the Dead. And it was, uh, it's a universe where, uh, it's a world where zombies and vampires coexist. Oh. So humans are fighting all sorts of shit. Love that. Anyway, I just wanted to say that. That's fun. Um, yeah, a different, super a different fun. take. Different take. All right. All right. What the hell? So I I purposely reserved. I did I did a little bit of pulling the wool over everyone's eyes. Not really. Um, but I purposely reserved this portion of the Bram Stoker slash Dracula history for my what the hell. Because I found it fascinating and did not know a bit of this. Interesting. Hit it. Um, did you know Dracula might have some Irish roots? No. Yeah. So, like we discussed earlier, it's widely believed that Dracula was based on Vlad the Impaler, which we've kind of debunked um, a lot of that tonight. Um, and as I said earlier, when Bram Stoker was young uh, and he was bedridden, mm-hmm. uh, his mother would come to his bedside and read Irish folk tales and sure. lore. And... Um, he never traveled to Transylvania, and so we know that he had to have drawn on things that he was familiar with. While he did do some research on Eastern European lore, um, he had to be also be inspired just from everyday life. Um, so it is believed, at least some scholars believe, that he may have drawn on the influence of the Irish myth of the she. Have you heard of the she? I have not heard of the she. So the she are a fairy people who live in a parallel world where they walk amongst the living. In a parallel world. In a parallel world. Beside us, but we can't see them. Beside us, but we can't see them. Okay. And they need to drink blood, either human or animal, to survive. I want to see that movie. I want to see that that story. I do too. I do too. How do you spell um, she? Is it? It is. It's Gaelic. So it's S-I-D-H-E. Okay. Pronounced she. Okay. Um, there is also an Irish wor- word pronounced Dracula, spelled D-R-E-A-C-H hyphen. That's Drac. And Hula being F-H-O-U-L-A. Which means bad or tainted blood. What the hell? What the hell? And there is a site, there's an Irish site called Dundracula, or Castle of Tainted Blood in County Kerry. And it is still purportedly occupied by the blood-drinking she. Okay, so I've been to Ireland. Why don't I know about this castle? Oh, First of all, right. I went to County Kerry. Oh, see, I when I went to Ireland, I did not go to County Kerry, so I cannot be at fault for that pe- portion. But I wish I... I knew when I was in Ireland that they had a, a pretty... I mean, I don't... Uh, there was a strongly held fairy belief. Sure. Oh, yes. And so... Um, that I knew. I did not know too much about the she in and of itself. 
Um, but this feels like it had to have been inspiration oh, for Bram Stoker. I mean that yeah, the it's coincidence is too it's too much. It's in his backyard. It is. So I believe personally no research connects this so <laughs> do not take this as fact but i believe that the she were influential in creating our idea of the vampire and he never mentioned that in interviews nope. or not that i found at least hmm yeah what the hell what the hell that's pretty good okay so I started looking into clinical vampirism for my what the hell and Renfield syndrome and all of that. But then I just stopped because I found this. Um, okay, so some of you who know me, many of you don't, but um, I have basically a pet squirrel who comes to my window at work every day and I feed him apples and popcorn and him. his name mm -hmm. is Fat Rupert. Oh, Rupert. And... I don't know. I was just thinking about him today because he sat on my windowsill like all day and then he serenaded me and then two other friends came and then there was a slap battle. <gasps> yes. So they all three sat in my window and just hung out there and they look in at me and it's awesome. They know. They know. They probably speak human language. I really want them to come in. Every morning mm -hmm. when I put my apple out, I go, Rupert. Yep. And then he and comes. he comes along. He does. It's really <laughs> weird. Um, <laughs> so... Then I started thinking about squirrels. Um, I think about squirrels probably more than people yeah. usually do. I think about squirrels more than I think about humans. Probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to agree. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> this is, oh, this is a sad what the hell. According to the American Public Power Association, there are about 3,400 squirrel-related power outages no. that cut off the electricity of more than 193,000 customers. No. That was in 2016. No. And... That in 2016, because of the squirrel power outages, eight humans died. Oh no! Yeah, squirrels killed eight humans. Pretty much. Well, they and that's a that we know of. That we know of. What the hell? What the hell? Where I used to live, you'd be sitting there minding your own business, watching TV, and all of a sudden you hear, and then you go out back, and there is a fricasseed squirrel. I hated being confronted with that. It was so sad. They. Why have they not evolved to know? Don't climb on that. Rupert has evolved enough to know his name to come to get the apple, which is probably not probably not true. This is not he scientific. Smells the apple, but, but I like to think he knows his name. But they're on those damn power lines all the time. All the time. So anyway, get yeah. off there. There it is. Get off there, babies. Squirrels kill people. Oh my goodness. So that's that. Well, thank you, horror nerds, for sticking around with us tonight. Yeah, celebrating um, the witch's birthday with us. Yes, thank you for celebrating. So, um, on a um, rate the drinks real quick, ooh, the McGrosses. Yes, happy, happy to do so. I like the banana alongside you. Yes. I like the banana, then the cherry, then the licorice. So, yeah. the pirates piss the bloody nose and then the dragon drool. Yeah. And which is probably the exact opposite of what I would have thought. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wasn't sure. I thought I would like the cherry the best. And I love black yeah. licorice, but I didn't know how well it would go with, um, with the, the champagne. The champagne, yeah. 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 I think, but I, I don't mind any of them. None of them disgusted me. You just wait. You know what I had oh, in my I'm hand? Sure. I had barf soda in my hand and then I, I put it down. But I know you did. <laughs> get ready because it's I happening. I know, I probably, I know. I know it's going to happen. And Cheesecake Lady. Cheesecake cheesecake Girl. girl. Oh, the my God. I'm so girl. sorry, Cheesecake Girl. Yes. Highly recommend, again, 
thank you for providing the delicious, delectable delights um, that we had tonight. Highly recommend. You are uh, a master cheesecake crafts woman. Master cheesecake craft. Love that. So uh, thank you, horror nerds, for sticking around. We super appreciate you being here tonight and listening all about the classics. Mm -hmm. Um, Let us know what we missed, some of your favorite classics or things you'd like to hear coming up. Um, You can reach us at info at thehorrorsalon.com. We would love to hear from you there. Uh, you can also follow along with us on our Instagram page at the horror salon. We've always got fun content going up to give you a glimpse into our lives outside of podcasting night. We're going to start doing some behind the scenes mm-hmm. photography, behind right? The Am scenes. I allowed to say that? Yeah, absolutely. Behind the scenes, give you a glimpse at what we're doing. It's going to be riveting. Riveting. <laughs> riveting narratives there um we also have a fun website thehorrorsalon.com where we put up some awesome show notes where you can dive into all the resources we use to come up with these podcasts yourself um you can get the ingredients for our pazoos or learn our reviews on each of the pazoozies that we try um so highly recommend you checking out thehorrorsalon.com and then finally If you enjoy this podcast, we do hope that you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts Mm -hmm. and give us a like, review, comment. All of that helps us um, get in front of other horror nerds eyes and it also helps us know how we're doing. So let us know. Give us some feedback. Feedback is welcome because we're not we're not perfect at this. We're just two nerds sitting in a basement yakking at each other. Heck yeah. And while we, and we have love every fun, minute of it. Yeah, we have a ton of fun, but we want to make sure we're, we're serving up what you're, yeah, what what you're ordering. Yeah, what you want. Yeah. Oh, God. It's, it's bedtime. <laughs> um, so, yes. So, with that. Okay. So, I'm going to say the name of this candle as I blow it out. Please. The My Last Fuck. Oh, yeah. Oh, look. It's on fire candle. <sighs> has been blown out. Heck, yeah. The Pazoo's. Is most definitely empty. The whole bottle empty. The whole bottle. Thank you so much for joining us. I am your co-host, Andemic. And I'm your co-host, The Witch. We'll catch you next time at the Horror Salon, where we curate the strange and unusual. Until dawn do us part. monsters it's the witch and andemic music for this episode is rage by the 126ers check out our website for show notes and links to some cool extras later nerds